0: Stay tuned for Wine Crush, Northwest Wine Stories Uncorked. Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. Thanks for joining us here on Portland Radio Project. Today, host Heidi Moore will guide us through the stories of two local winemakers. The first shows how one little phone call can open up the viticultural opportunity of a lifetime and the second comes from a winery that describes their wines in three words, acid-driven, transparent, and adventurous.
1: We're talking with Jared Etzel from Domain Roy. Welcome to the show, of course.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yes, I'm so glad that you followed me out here from the valley. You've got quite a lineage with wine. This isn't your first rodeo, so to speak. You've pretty much been born and raised within the wine industry.
2: Yes. I was three years old when uh, my family moved us from Colorado Springs to Oregon. And it was somewhat of on a whim for them. Uh, They came out for a ski expo, fell in love with the property, purchased it. They weren't wine growers or uh, winemakers at the time. and they fell in love with the property, moved the family out, and planted the vineyard with a plan to sell fruit. And the fruit back then would sell for $2,000 a ton. And so we quickly learned that uh, we couldn't make ends meet, and we were living like poplars. It wasn't this uh, glamorous uh, view that a lot of people have of the wine industry. It was down and dirty, and it was when Oregon was uh, in its infancy of uh, viticultural and winery years. And so my dad realized he couldn't sell the grapes for enough money to make ends meet. So he worked, you know, four jobs logging, working in tasting rooms and so forth while he transitioned the pig barn into a winery. And, uh, you know, we were in tow kind of absorbing osmotically what we could. And, um, I can remember the, the early years, they were very, very difficult, you know, always, uh, Fight conversation about money and our is it going to make it and so forth. And the first vintage was released. We licked all the mailers, sent them out because back then nothing was internet driven sales, it was all mailers. I can remember the tension, not knowing whether you know the wine would sell and whether we could continue over the next week the mailman literally having to come up to the house to deliver all the envelopes with checks and in some cases cash, a massive sense of relief. And slowly they added on additions to the pig barn, making a little bit more wine each year, planting more grapes and us in tow, and just absorbing, you know, the farm life and a little bit of the struggle. And Kind of now embracing that where Oregon came from is, I think, very important to know how, where we came from and, and what we evolved from. For me, uh, Domain Roy has been much more, we've been much more fortunate in our beginning because of what my father and Robert Roy um, did in founding Beaufort and having a successful business that allowed us to build a beautiful facility and to have a nice vineyard site in the Dundee Hills, you know, when I got that phone call from uh, Mark Roy asking, do you want to continue and have the two families work together to uh, make a new venture? I was extremely excited and, um, and took the opportunity immediately. And we found the property that we now have uh, on Warden Hill Road. Planted it to 15 and a half acres of vine, growing it organically. Continuing the tradition of the two families, Etzels and Roy's, working together, building on kind of what our fathers established back in the late or mid-80s.
1: I, I don't even know where to go with that other than the fact that I got goosebumps because yeah. I just – I love the imagery of the pig barn. I love just – I you showed me some of the pictures of mm-hmm. you and your overalls and yep. bare feet or rubber boots or whatever yeah. it was in the mud and – I love hearing beginnings of that. For the mere fact that you're a very rare family at this point in time within the wine industry. So we're gonna come back, talk about the wine, continue to talk about what your vision is and get into what you brought
0: us to drink today. Sounds good. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com.
1: So we left off talking about wine, or at least hinting about wine. So you did bring us some wine today, which you had the most beautiful descriptions before any of this started to tell us about why you love this bottle. So let's start there. And then there was rocks everywhere in the tasting room. So obviously rock and the terroir or the topography or whatever it is that is within all the dirt is really important to what you guys are doing.
2: It is. It's super important. And what I brought is our Maison Roy or Maison Roy for the non-Francophile. Incline Dundee Hills 2016, um, which is from our estate vineyard, which we call the Iron Filbert Vineyard. We call it the Iron Filbert Vineyard because of... The soil and the rocks, um, Jory soil, it's very iron-rich, it's very red. In our case, there's a lot of large boulders, and in some cases, they were the size of a Volkswagen bug. Truly, because yeah. they're
1: sitting at the edge of the vineyard, and yeah, yeah they're pretty – um yeah, they're just – they're there.
2: Yeah, and uh, iron filbert, because we're paying homage to what the property was before it was a vineyard. It was a filbert orchard. And uh, filberts were a very important part of Oregon agriculture at the time. So that's where the name comes from. The wine is 2016 vintage. And um, 2016 is one of my favorite vintages because I think it screams Oregon. And I think that's an important uh, aspect of wine is that it needs to tell uh, the place that it comes from. So the 16 vintage has a lot of fruit. It has silky structure, which is, um, I think, very Oregonian. Oregon wines, from my perspective, a lot of them have a nice brightness of fruit. It's not quite as much as what you get out of California. So it's dialed back a little bit. And you also have silky tannin and a nice ripeness. And I think a little bit more ripeness, generally speaking, than a lot of the Burgundian wines. So for me, it's kind of wedged between the profile of a California Pinot and a Burgundian Pinot. And I think it's great that, you know, our industry is starting to embrace uh, being Oregonian and expressing really what our properties do and not what's done in, uh, in elsewhere. This wine we produce organically. We really try to keep the low input in the vineyard We do native ferments. The yields are kept down to around 2.4, 2.5 tons in 2016. We're just trying to make something that's soulful, that expresses the vintage and expresses the terroir. And in some cases, uh, when we're working on the blends, embracing the imperfection, like a balanced imperfection. I think is important in making a soulful wine that's true to the property. You don't want it always to be perfect and shiny, and because then it's, uh, for me at least, it has less character and personality. And so I love this wine because it's um, floral, it has fruit, it has a little bit of earth tone, a little bit of imperfection, flintiness, and uh, a nice silky tannin, and it has a lot of character. So...
1: Do you write your own tasting notes at the winery? Because you have the best descriptive words with everything.
2: I used to read a lot of um, critical reviews. My uncle's a wine critic, Robert Parker. So I read what he um, wrote and um, I try to write as much as I can tasting notes. I don't really write anything beyond tasting notes. I do not that skilled, but
1: no, I love it. Yeah. And I know you do more than Pinot, but I want to stop right there, and I want to circle back to the whole piece about being and a true Oregonian and inflecting that into the wine. So,
0: pause, and we'll be right back. Perfect. You're listening to Wine Crush, one of our locally produced podcasts at Portland Radio Project. Get in touch, discover, listen at prp.fm.
1: We left us talking about how you're really working at embracing what Oregon means within the wine world. Why don't you finish kind of telling us about that? And also you make something other than Pinot too, so I want to make sure that people know that as well.
2: Yep, Pinot Noir and uh, and Chardonnay, so relatively uh, traditional Oregon varietals. And um, yeah, embracing organ identity, I think it's changed over um period of time. So, when my dad started back in 86, he was kind of considered the second wave of uh, the viticultural pioneers. He wasn't wave one. That's more David Lett, the Irie Winery, Ponzi, uh, Sokol Blosser. They were wave one. My dad was right on their tail, wave two. But during the mid 80s, 90s, and even into 2000s, people were always talking about Oregon Pinot Noir and relating it instantaneously to Burgundy. And I think that was necessary maybe at the time because Oregon didn't have such a exposure that it does now on a national, international level. We've kind of gained the respect and acceptance, I guess, of quality. And I think that the new generation And the old generation that's still going at it, which a lot of them are, are starting to now say, we're Oregon wine. We're not relating everything to how it tastes in Burgundy or how it tastes in California. They're saying, you know, we're Oregon and and this is our style of wine. And that's, uh, you know, we're very proud of it. And I think that that's really important because the more that we embrace our character and our wine, uh, it'll differentiate ourselves from. Uh, the Burgundies and um, the California wines, they're amazing as well, but just very, very different.
1: And Oregon is its own thing. You know, kind of going back to, you know, kind of where Oregon started, that's really where your tasting room and your vineyard is, is in right in the heart of where Oregon wine began.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, we're about a mile and a half as the crow flies from Irie. Um, and Irie's kind of credited as being really the founding Papa Pino, they call them. And we were super fortunate to find this this uh, property that was a filbert orchard, which most of Dundee started out as plum and filbert and walnut orchards. And then the Columbus Day storm, I think it was 61 or 62, 100-mile-per-hour winds blew through there. They destroyed all the orchard trees. And then people were slowly planting to more filbert or to grapevine. And now the hills are predominantly uh, grapevines.
1: For sure. Yeah. So as far as like where the winery is, you know, Mm -hmm. you have stuff going. I know you have some parties. You've got a gorgeous tasting room up there that looks over the entire valley. Mm -hmm. Um, What should we be looking for coming up?
2: Well, we have a uh, harvest dinner on August 25th at the winery. It will be um, Spatzel and Speck, who is a talented Portland caterer using local ingredients, uh, simple farm-style food, I guess, uh, for a lack of a better way to describe it. But it's delicious, and uh, we'll pair it with our uh, wines from the property. You'll get to enjoy the, the harvest energy, which I think is amazing. It's, uh, it's a time where people have great expectation for the coming vintage. A little bit of nerve, but overall, just very positive vibe. Very fun. So we hope that some of you can come and join us.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a good time. And I love the fact that it's Spetzel. I can't even pronounce it, but I love it. So anyhow, I would definitely have to check it out. Thank you for coming and not only joining us, but defining the difference between Domain Roy and Domain Roi, because I didn't know the difference, and now I do. And uh, we'll see you again soon.
2: Thank you.
0: Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com.
1: Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Let's meet our next guest today, Jason from Hanson Vineyards. Thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Yes. So I had the pleasure of coming out to the vineyard uh, months ago. I think it was maybe November. I don't know. Was it after the new year?
3: It was after the new year, but it was a gorgeous, gorgeous day.
1: In the middle of winter. And it was beautiful. Other than I did wear the wrong shoes, but, but we made it through. We made it through. So you have such an interesting story because where you began like out of high school or, you know, whatever was not anywhere near the winery.
3: No, at eighteen, I escaped to the East Coast. Uh, Our fourth-generation family farm was not the place I wanted to be, and so I uh, went to college on the East Coast. Ended up in Washington D.C. for fourteen years, and um, it was right about September eleventh, two thousand one. I decided "Eh, I got to think about my strategy for getting back to Oregon, and so talking with my father, uh, we decided to plant grapes on the farm and uh start a winery and took a couple of years and in 2005 we had our our first vintage
1: so your time over on the east coast was not farm related no on any on any scale i was actually a little bit surprised and taken back when you told me what you'd been doing because you're you're so mild mannered and what i expect from what you were doing i expect a big boisterous you know Yeah. Personality to a certain extent. Well,
3: yeah, yeah. I uh, went to grad school for politics, political management, uh, campaign management, lobbying, grassroots organizing. I had my own company uh, doing political research for a number of years. Uh, But my real start was in advertising and marketing for big corporate law firms. So that was all very interesting and not really what I wanted to do. And so I had my first midlife crisis. And I uh, started bartending and ended up uh, uh, managing or uh, managing a uh, very busy bar in downtown Washington D.C.
1: It's amazing when you kind of you know take a step back and go into something that you did not grow up learning, knowing. I was the same way. I wanted nothing to do with our family farm, but there's something that is buried deep in your heart that comes right back to the yep. top when you're kind of in these different situations that pull you back.
3: Well, and it's so much more wonderful when. It comes out naturally, rather than maybe grudgingly taking over the farm. No, this is something that I, I really desired to come back to.
1: So you said you were fourth generation, and the vineyard piece of it is new.
3: The vineyard piece is new. Uh, my great grandfather did dairy and and berries, uh, a lot of a lot of blackberries. My parents did walnuts, and then in two thousand. Two, we started planting grapes.
1: Which is really cool to kind of hear back through these generations because your credo for the farm is family does it all at Hansen.
3: Either my father or I have planted every vine. Uh, We string our own wire. We make the wine. We do most of the field labor. Uh, I'm in the vineyard 75% of my time now. Um, And if I'm not in the vineyard, I'm in the tasting room every weekend. So you... Pretty much always get to see a Hanson when you come to Hanson Vineyards.
1: It's such a treat when you actually get to meet the person who's growing the grapes, making the wine. They actually have a true love, passion, and a connection with what is going on.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I tell people in the tasting room, if you have any questions, you have the person in front of you who can give you the answer about this wine because... I made every single wine here.
1: And I want to get into the wines because you had a really beautiful lineup. You've brought us some really nice wines today. But I want to pause right here because I want to spend some great time talking about the wine and
0: really what makes Hanson Vineyard so special. Hey, thanks for listening. Why not head over to iTunes and write us a review? We'd love to hear from you, and it helps others find out about our show. For new episodes of Wine Crush and to discover other PRP podcasts, check out the PRP Podcast Co-op at PRP.fm.
1: It's time to talk about some wine. So you brought two beautiful bottles of wine, two of my very favorite varietals. I love a a dry Riesling, and I love rosé. So nice choices on what you brought. So let's start at the beginning with your wine because you definitely do more than this.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I grow 11 different varieties of grapes. Uh, That is probably the adventurous part of my winemaking ethos, transparent, uh, adventurous, and acid-driven. Acid-driven, thank you. I like to play with lots of different things. And having a big, broad palette of grapes to work with is really a lot of fun for me. I love Pinot, but I can't drink Pinot every day. Yeah. So having the ability to have a bunch of different whites, a bunch of different reds, unusual varietals, uh, things that aren't often found in the Willamette Valley or North America uh, is a uh, is, is a fun way to make wine.
1: That's actually pretty interesting when you say it's not North American. So are these some of those spy suitcase clones that from no. across the ocean?
3: No, we're more legit than that. Oh, dang. Uh, but I do grow a uh, Ukrainian varietal. It's Russian-Ukrainian uh, called Galabek. A very rarely planted in Oregon varietal called Madeline Angevine. Um, That's pretty. Yeah, it's a pretty name, isn't it? Yeah. That's kind of what attracted to me at in Sounds the Sounds like beginning. it should be a rose. Right? right. Yes. So I, broad palette. I make 14 to 16 different wines every year. I make usually multiple Rosés, uh, Rosé Pinot Noir every year, but sometimes a Rosé of Gamay, a Rosé of Pinot Gris. Uh, I made my first orange wine last year. Uh, yeah. So it, being a small winery, I'm, I get to play. You know, If, if I want to give something a shot, I can do it.
1: Which I think that would be the beauty and the fun of being a smaller winery. I mean, like you've just said, I mean, you're not expected to make X, Y, and Z every year. And especially once you get your reputation out there, you, I mean, 16 wines is a lot. As far as something as a consumer to choose from. I mean, I'd walk in like a kid to a candy store and go, ooh.
3: Well, in our tasting room, I only pour six or seven every weekend.
1: Oh, that's disappointing.
3: Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, it encourages people to come back.
1: Okay, that's a good way to put it. I'll take that. So what else do you do? I mean, we've talked about kind of some of the different ones, you know, but let's go a little bit deeper into what your, you know, what are your staples? What are your specialties?
3: Pinot Noir, and uh, it's a unique red blend of um, uh, Pinot, Merchelle Foch, Leon Mio, and the Galabak, the Ukrainian varietal. Those are my two biggest production wines. So they're the ones that are available at like Whole Foods or, or Market of Choice. Um, but I also make Pinot Gris and Riesling and uh, of course a couple rosés.
1: So what is the orange wine? I've seen it a couple times and everybody has a different spin on it.
3: It's essentially making a white wine out of the red wine process. Okay. So the white wine ferments on its skins and seeds uh in fermenters like a, a red wine would, rather than being pressed out and just fermenting the juice. Got it. Yeah. So all, even white grapes have uh, a certain amount of anthocyanin, which is the color compound uh, in grapes in its skins. So if you allow those to leach out into the fermentation, it usually kind of ends up an orangey color.
1: A little orange, a little salmon, yeah. pink kind of. Yeah. yeah I've yeah. seen a couple different variations of it. It
3: depends on what white grape you use. So sure. mine is a, a Pinot Blanc and it is truly like a tang orange. Ooh. Yeah.
1: You didn't share that with me last time I was there.
3: It's still in tank.
1: Oh, oh, dang. Okay. I expect a phone call All right. when it gets in bottle and we'll make a field trip out there. Awesome. You're and on. yep, we'll enjoy a day at Hanson Vineyard, which which is beautiful, by the way. I think I've mentioned that, but I thought I'd stick it in there again. So the million dollar question is, which one's your favorite?
3: Do you have a favorite child?
1: <laughs> Some days.
3: So well, Okay. Uh, it really does depend on the time of year. I'm really kind of grooving on my gamma right now. I released in May, the 2017 Gamay, and I I'm, it's really a great summer red. It's kind of light, vibrant, acid-driven. It gets you right here uh, in the corners of your, your cheeks when, when you take that first sip.
1: I didn't try that either. So that means that I gotta come back twice, which, oh dang. So <laughs> let's just put a stop and a hold right there and we'll come right back and talk a little bit more about the vineyard.
3: Great.
0: Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com.
3: Okay,
1: we left off hinting around about the vineyard. We've talked a little bit about it, but there's something really special and spectacular about where your vineyard is. It's not up on the hill. Um, there is a really cool treehouse that you have to ask about, though. <laughs> That's a secret. Shh, Shh. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell, anyone don't tell anybody. the treehouse. Yes. But it is very unique where it's at and and what the vineyard is about. So I I do want to really talk about that because there is a big difference between where yours is versus Jared's. And then you're also in the Cascade Foothills versus the Dundee Hills. And so there's a lot of... You know um, differentiations between the two wineries and vineyards.
3: Yeah, so Hanson Vineyards uh, is in the Cascade foothills, as you say, and people will then go, "Well, where's that?" Well, we're in the Willamette Valley, but we're on the east side of the Willamette Valley, so it's not the coastal uh, foothills in Yamhill-Carlton that you might normally think of uh, for for wine in the Willamette Valley. We're the other side, so think the Cascades and going towards the mountains and and, uh, streams. The closest town uh, to us is Silverton, and there's about 16 or 17 wineries in our area. Each one of them very different from the other, but pretty much all of them small family uh, farm wineries. But then for Hanson Vineyards, we are in what is called the Butte Creek Bench. And it's an area, it's about a quarter mile wide, that uh, a small Cascade Creek has carved out of the Willamette Valley. So we're 30 feet or so below, and it's all sand and rock and heavy, heavy clay. So a very different um, geology for a winery than most, well, even of our, our closest neighbors
1: which you you always think of these you know these red rich soils that you see in the Dundee hills and even you know throughout the Eola hills and Yamhill Carlton so why does that make such a difference and what does that do to your wine
3: I don't quite know the chemistry reasons our wines are, are different but we do have a different mineral set in our ground on our farm than you would even if you drove a quarter mile away from our our vineyard it does lead to very bright acid driven fresh uh, styles of wine. Even my my reds have a, a brightness to them um, that is innate. It's not something that I'm doing as a winemaker. And so I believe that is probably the biggest effect on our wines.
1: It's pretty cool because not everybody realizes the dirt and the mineralities and what's in the actual soil can affect the same grape.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, grapes are absolutely fascinating. It's the reason we make wine from grapes rather than you know, melons or blackberries. It's that grapes can transform based on the minerals that they're they're drinking out of the earth.
1: Yeah, it's a it's really a true picture and and map of where they're from and and who and what they are.
3: Oh, without doubt.
1: Yeah, which I had no idea when I first got into this whole wine thing that grapes were so transparent and so um, really so expressive as far as who and what they are. Absolutely. So. Where is, you said you were outside of Silverton. So how does everybody find you?
3: You can Google Hanson Vineyards, Hanson with an O. It's got to spell it the right way. Uh, We are about six and a half miles uh, northeast of Silverton. Easy to find. Open weekends.
1: There's a big white church.
3: There's a cute little white church. Cute little white church.
1: It's not big, I guess. It is a cute little white church. And it is on your labels. So what is the story behind that? Because I know there was a little bit of a story There is
3: a story. So my great-grandfather bought our farm from the church. It had been the parsonage farm for the church. And when we took it over, uh, it was 1930. The Depression had just begun. And churches back then had to pay property taxes. And they really couldn't afford to pay the property taxes on a whole farm. So that's when it came into our family. The funny part is that it's a Seventh-day Adventist Church. So Ixne on the Ooze Bay, if you take my meaning. <laughs> Love it. So don't don't tell them that they're that they're on our label. That would not be good.
1: I will not do that. Um, but that is definitely what you want to look for when you go to Whole Foods and wherever else your wine is. Um The,
3: the sold. Little White Church is is on all the white labels and the little red barn that my great grandfather built is on all the red labels.
1: Okay. So you've heard it here. White church? Red Barn, go pick up your and Wines at the store. Thank you, Jason, for joining us. This has been such a pleasure and so much fun, and I cannot wait to get out to try that orange wine.
3: I will let you know the second it's released. I expect that phone call. <laughs> so.
1: Thank you for joining us for the 10th episode of Wine Crush Season 2. Have a great weekend, and we will see you at the bottom of the glass. Dun-dun-dun-dun!